So the first, uh, first reason is just the depth of the study, and we went into that a lot last time. So we went on many tangents and we developed the ideas um, over there. Uh, this is chapter 34, right? So Perak Lamedalet, and we're up to the Sibashniya Kotzer Dat Kol Adam Bereshitam. I think we also mentioned this, right? That the person's, uh, the person's limited intellect that the perfection of a person is not present in actuality in the beginning, only in potential. And in the beginning, he's lacking. In, in, so, and then he quotes the pasuk from, uh, uh, from, from uh, Iov, that a person is born as a wild donkey. Just because somebody has a potential doesn't mean it's going to become actual. It could be that the person will remain in his inferior state. So this is something true uh, about us in general, that our perfection is a... Um, one of the things that bothers people a lot is that in order to... Uh, people are always looking for a shortcut, and that's really what the Rambam is going to talk about in the next part too. But... One thing is that the ability of a person to uh, uh, to understand um, is uh, only in potential and has to be actualized. Uh, not a lot of people become wise. I mentioned this last time in the last year that that's Rabbi Shubar Yochai. I've seen the people who attain the highest level of perfection and they're very they're very few. The problem is that a person doesn't have the ability to develop their mind in such a way that they're going to be able to uh, grasp, the, uh, to train themselves uh, the, so that they're going to be able to grasp the subject. So one is about the, um, it would be like a person who really wants to run a marathon, but he doesn't have the time to train for it, or the person who wants to be in the NBA, he doesn't have time to practice, or a person who, uh, who wants to become a uh, nuclear physicist, but he doesn't have the patience to learn basic math or something like that. The Rambam is going to get more into the, pre- the content precursors in a second. This is talking about the ability precursor. In other words, the idea that an individual the reason why a person should not enter into the most advanced areas of study in the beginning is because the mind is not developed, it's not mature enough to, uh, uh, to grasp these uh, concepts at the beginning of, uh, at the, beginning of their, the process of learning. And simply that we're not born, uh, and especially according to the Rambam, as I had mentioned, we're not born with an actualized uh, uh, soul. We're not born with an actualized a mind. The mind is something that we have to bring from its potential into its actual state over time. And so therefore, a person is not ready for, just like he uses the analogy elsewhere, a person is not ready to digest um, to digest regular food. A baby is not ready to digest regular food, not because the regular food is not good, but because the digestive system isn't developed enough to be able to process it. Um, and so if an, if an individual, because of internal or external forces, doesn't develop their ability to, um, to grasp the subject so they're not going to be ready for it and be able to digest it. Yeah, what did you want to say? You don't have to raise your hand. I just wanted to... I said, yeah, go ahead. Uh, he addressed a point in the field, first level that, that the capable of the depth 
believe in the second one, that they're adequately developed in order to understand certain ideas. How is one to engage in a when they've successfully graduated to that level of understanding? That's one of the big issues. That's one of the issues that the Rambam says is the most difficult. He actually comes back to it a few times in the course of the um, in the course of the That one of the big uh, challenges and one of the areas in which people make uh, the gravest errors is in assuming that they're ready for things that they're not ready for. And he talks about how the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu, for example. The, um, in Masachet Bachot, there's the Agadah that's brought about Moshe Rabbeinu covered his face when Hashem revealed himself, and therefore because he covered his face, later on he was Zocheh, that his face shone from uh, you know, receiving the Divine Presence, meaning to say that because he recognized his limitations and he didn't try to jump ahead uh, uh, from where he was to where he was not ready, so therefore he actually, that was actually a Zechut that he was able to, um, that showed that he was able to um, uh, pace himself and his development and he didn't get ahead of himself and he didn't make errors and the biggest mistake that people make is that they think they're ready for things that they aren't and then they come to conclusions that are premature and that can happen either because they overestimate the level of their own uh, ability or it could, it could come because they underestimate the um, the extent of their preparedness in this particular area there's two different issues here one of them is um, like he mentioned, the depth of the subject is one thing, but in terms of the person, he's really identifying two issues. One issue is the um, internal readiness of the mind for certain tasks, and we know that the mind develops its capacity, its cognitive capacity gradually, and not everybody is, is the same. In other words, a person who has a trained mind is different than a person who has an untrained mind. Forget about the subject that they're learning. In other words, if you take, some, if you take Albert Einstein and you sit him down and you teach him Talmud Bavli, he, his mind can grasp it. That doesn't mean that he has all of the tools necessary to understand uh, Talmud Bavli. It doesn't mean he has all the t- tools necessary to understand any other subject just because he understands physics, but his mind is definitely a mature and developed and capable mind. That's what he's talking about right now, that many people simply don't have the depth of mind to understand. And I'm sure everyone here has encountered people who really are very like kind of simplistic and naive and they throw out these kind of like, uh, they throw out ideas that are uh, poorly thought through or they have objections or arguments that you can immediately see are full of holes and they're full of, you know, they, they, they lack logic and they're not cogent and they're not very sophisticated and um, they're not even aware of it. It's like almost they're, they, they're at a different level of, of, uh, of development of their minds than you are. And so you can see that. And, and obviously you can observe that in children, that children's, as children's capacity to think and to reason um, advances like uh, Piaget is the famous theorist who talked about you know the, the development of children um, and things like that. But there are many others. Um, all this cognitive development and of course moral development that takes place is taking place gradually as the mind develops. And the mind doesn't always develop, is what the Rambam is saying. In other words, it, it's not necessarily true that the fifty-year-old guy who is a, a construction worker or a garbage collector, just because he's fifty years old, that means he has a, a, the mind of a uh, the trained mind of a of a fifty year old who spent uh, time studying and learning and uh, and developing himself, and in fact, you could even find people who studied in Shivot and they studied Talmud and they studied uh, advanced subjects, but they never really um, developed their skills of thinking and uh, and 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 uh, you know cultivated and organized and clear mind that they still have a befuddled mind, even after lots of time engaged in advanced uh, study.
That's why you find that there were some, there were some uh, people like Stephen Hawking and, uh, and what's his name, the other one, um, the other guy, uh, the other British guy. You know, you have other, uh, other thinkers who are uh, Dawkins, you know, who, who might be brilliant in their particular fields of study, but as soon as they start talking about a subject that is, uh, that is outside that field, they, they say total nonsense, and you wonder how it's possible for somebody who is so knowledgeable in one area to be so uh, lacking in perspective and clarity and so illogical in another area, and the answer is that the person's mind is not really developed uh, fully, and therefore they don't even sense um, the, uh, you know, the areas in which they're out of their depth. And that's unfortunate, because as you know, the only thing worse than a person who's ignorant is a person who's ignorant but thinks that they know a lot. You know, that's, that's the worst. Um, he doesn't advise this for What'd you say? He doesn't opine or any advice well, right now he's talk. Right, I mean, he is going to talk about it. There's two levels of preparedness. One prepared. One level of preparedness is just being able to um, develop the mind itself. In other words, to nurture and cultivate the mind itself so that it attains a level where it can reason um, in a healthy and, and clear manner. And that's what he's talking about now because he's talking about how our minds are. Uh, the perfection of our mind, the perfection of the mind is not the same thing as knowledge. See, in other words, what he's talking about now is not the specific areas of knowledge that you need to master as a precursor to to studying metaphysics. He's talking about the training of the mind that's necessary um, uh, prior to that. And that he's going to mention uh, coming up. He is going to mention it coming up. That in the third Siba, he really gets into the topic that are necessary. In other words, the course of study that's necessary. But right now he's just pointing out that an, a person who is not, who has befuddled reasoning or who reasons emotionally or who, you know, who reasons from, who is not a clear thinker to begin with, has not really refined their mind, is gonna, and, and that comes with both age and maturity and it also comes with a certain amount of effort, that person's not going to be up to the task of studying uh, metaphysics. And therefore, like the Rambam says, actually, in Hilchot uh, Yisodei Torah, uh, the Rambam says that the mitzvot, in addition to being that subject, which is uh, accessible to everyone, that's what the Rambam, the Rambam says. First of all, the mitzvot, why shouldn't a person, this is in the fourth parak of Yisodei uh, Torah. He says, if if understanding the metaphysics and metaphysics is such a desirable uh, such a desirable occupation, so why don't we advise that first? He said, well, first of all, the mitzvot are for everyone, and second of all, adam they settle the mind of a person. That's what the Rambam says in Ilchot Yisodei Torah. That in other words, studying the Torah can help a person settle their mind. It teaches you how to think logically, rationally, how to reason, how to you know how to progress through a, a subject matter and master it. How to have an organized concept, uh, you know, an organized uh, uh, understanding of uh, of a field of of study. In other words, it, now you could use other hypothetically, you could use other fields of study in order to you know internalize that. But what the what hypothetically at least. Ideally, what study of the mitzvot does, in addition to, and then he says it's also for Yeshuva Olam Hazeh, Kedei Linchol Olam Abba. That you know, it's for that's the other part of it. In other words, obviously, the mitzvot have an intrinsic value both in this world and the next world in terms of perfection. But he says, Miyashvin Datosh Adam Techila, 
which means that the mitzvot order our minds, prepare our minds for the more advanced study. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying that, in other words, when you teach kids to reason and you teach kids to think and you teach kids to question and how to, how to find an answer and what's considered a valid answer and what's considered an, uh, you know, a befuddled, uh, cloudy answer and what's, a, what is a, you know, what's clear and what's a crisp understanding, and uh, you know, uh, that gives them the training that teaches their minds to think in an orderly fashion. And, not, and, and that's what the Rambam says, the mitzvot can do that. In other words, a Torah education, in addition to the content itself being valuable, is also teaches the person how to think clearly. And this is what he's really talking about here. Not the mitzvot as a gateway necessarily in terms of their content, although they, they also are. But he's not talking about that here. He's talking about yishuv dato adam. Most people do not know how to think. You engage people in any kind of a debate and you notice right away they do not know how to think. They do not, they, they, you know, they, they don't know how to think about any complex topic in a reasonable way. Sometimes you can have two people who are very reasonable and rational and they can have a debate and a disagreement. But both of them are offering arguments and perspectives that are, are thought out and intelligent and cogent and all of that. You know, but many a time you'll be arguing with somebody about a subject and you'll see that they don't know they can't even see when their argument is full of holes. They don't know what a valid answer is, what a valid question is, what a, you know, when they're confusing a prime, you know, something what we call an essence for an accident, they're confusing a cause for an effect. You know, they, they don't have a, a clear sense of, um, uh, of how, to, uh, how to reason through a subject. We've all had that experience, I don't have to tell you. Um, and, uh, and, and that kind of a, uh, that kind of a disorganized mind is what the Rambam is telling you to avoid. So that's Siba Shniya. Siba Shlishit, Arichuta Mitzayim. So this is talking about the, and this is what, we're, really where the Rambam uh, talks the most. He says, in addition to the mind and in addition to the subject. Okay, the mind you can develop and you can, mature, you can uh, invest in, in, in developing a mature mind. Okay, and you're not going to be able to change the depth of the subject, obviously. But what about the preliminary disciplines that are necessary for a person to master in order to understand these areas? And that's where most people, he says, really flounder. He says that a person has an innate desire to know the ultimate truths. But he has no patience for the, for the preliminary studies required to be able to attain that. He says, if, the, if, you, could, um, if you could attain a goal without any intermediary steps, so then these aren't intermediary steps, they're just a distraction, they're just a waste of time. But that's not the case in this situation, right? If you wake up a fool, this is one of my favorite analogies that Rambam gives. If you wake up a fool in the middle of the night, like you wake up someone sleeping and you say, if you ask a person, 
Do you want to know how many stars there are? Do you want to know the nature of the heavens and what's in them? Do you want to know what malachim are? Do you want to know how the universe was created? What's the purpose of the kefisi duo? And what the ultimate objective is of the universe? What is the soul? How it exists in the body? If the soul of a person separates from the body and goes to Olam Abba. Okay? All of these, basically what he just described to you is the entire topic of metaphysics. It's everything that you discuss. Right? Everything discussed is Maseb Rishit and Maseb Merkava. He just basically summarized it, right? All those things. What are angels? What's the nature of the universe? The nature of the soul? All this. If you wake a person up in the middle of the night and say, Would you like to know the answer to these burning questions? There's no person who wouldn't want to know the answer to those questions. There's no person who wouldn't want to know what the ultimate meaning of life is, what the answer is to all these questions. They want to know right away. We have a natural curiosity and a desire to understand these ultimate questions. But he would want to know it in one word. He would say, give me it on one foot. We say, right? Give me the answer on one foot. Simple. That's, that's what I've always found is so funny. Whenever you deal with um, anyone who's a gone off the derech, okay? Or whatever it is. Or, uh, especially if they're intellectual. If they've gone off supposedly for intellectual. They have questions. They have questions about... Uh, about religion or questions about God or questions about the universe and you say to them, well, you know, before you understand that, you need to understand this, you need to, uh, you need to uh, study this, you need to um, investigate this and then once you understand this, you can progress. No, you don't want to give me an answer. You don't want to give me an answer because you don't have an answer. That's what they'll tell you. I've, in, I've engaged with certain people like that. They're not all like of that nature, but m- most people who are... If you tell a person, no, in order to know the answer to this, you, like if you were to say to Richard Dawkins, look, in order to know the answer to whether God exists or not, you need to, cons- you need to study all of these subjects. You need to study logic. You need to study uh, you know, the, the whole realm of the sciences. You need to study philosophy at a very sophisticated level and then come to a conclusion based on that. He would say, no, I can write a book on it already, even though I'm just an evolutionary biologist, you know? I can write three books on whether there's a God or not. I don't need to go through this, that process. And you are just deflecting by telling me that there are subjects that I need to study prior to being able to have an opinion about this. But if you told him you made a decision about whether evolution was true or not without having studied any of the material, any of the evidence, any of the books, any of the research, any of the data, he would say you were a fool. Okay? So it can't go, it can't be uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a one-way street. In other words, any subject, if, if in order to know whether evolution is true or not, a person really needs to study a great deal of material to be convinced, let's assume that that's the case. I'm not taking a position on evolution or not. I'm just saying, uh, saying, right, in any area, a person has to go into an area and study a great deal of preliminaries in order to have an opinion in that area. And they have to know the material and they have to uh, look at the evidence and they have to be trained and so on, and especially an advanced subject. If that's true for an area like biology, if that's true for physics, for sure, nobody's going to sit here and judge whether, uh, you know, whose theory is right of the advanced theoretical physicists based on watching a Discovery Channel special for half an hour. You're not going to be able to do that. You need to actually study and know. But if a person does that in those areas, to decide what's the nature of the universe, which metaphysical ideas are true, what's true about God, what's true about Malachim, what's true about the soul, how does a person do that? 
How can a person think to do that with absolutely no preliminary studies just uh, from his armchair or because he uh, read a couple of uh, popular books written by, you know, written for the layperson? It just doesn't make any sense why there should be any less than, um, but I found so many skeptics or, you know, borderline heretics or skeptics, they don't have the patience. When you tell them, well, in order to understand this, you really need to read this. You really first need to study that. You really need first to master this. And then you'll understand. They don't have the, the, they don't have the patience. Think, for example, about Midrashim that we, we've spent a good amount of time over the years studying. If you tell, a, if a person looks at a Midrash on the surface, they say, oh, this is stupid. The, the rabbis made up something stupid. If you say to them, See, I can tell you this now, seven or eight years later, I'll say, well, actually, if you take time and you do midrash after midrash and you study it and you understand the method of how the rabbis use the midrash to convey their ideas and you were able to see time after time how those ideas actually illuminated the text and, and were very profound and very, very deep and very enlightening, then you would become convinced that even the midrashim you don't understand have an idea behind them. See, if I told you that eight years ago, you'd be like, maybe, maybe not. Let's say, uh, uh, but if you spent the time doing it, now you look back and you see a person, after you spent a lot of time learning Midrashim, right? And you know how to, how to understand, unlock the secrets. You have, uh, you have the skill, you've seen how to do it. So now you'll see a person who ha- is a skeptic, like maybe you were skeptical about Midrashim or dismissive of Midrashim in the past. Right now you see somebody like that and you tell them, no, if you study this and you study that and you look at this and you look at that, you'll be able to be convinced over time that there's a different method here, that there's depth here. They'll say to you, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. The rabbis just don't make any sense. In other words, you're, you've reversed um, your, your position at the table. You might have originally been very skeptical of Midrashim because they sound like hocus pocus and they sound like, you know, they sound like the kind of thing that you learn in the little Midrash says or something like that. But now, uh, now that you have a different perspective and you realize how long it might have taken you to develop that perspective and become convinced of that perspective, so now you understand that things that are of value, insights that are of value, they don't happen overnight. They take a lot of preliminary to get there. And that's the that's the um, that's what he's saying. Um, and then he says, so if you wake this guy up and he wants to learn, he'll say to you, "Oh, and I skipped one of the questions." That if a, if if the soul separates from the body, how does it do it? And 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 into what does it become? And and where does it go? And all that, all those questions, right? He wants to know in one word, two words. Fine. If you ask the person to take a week off of work to study these areas to know the area, okay? Even a week he won't be willing to take off of his work in order to do it. Rather, he will be happy with the false imaginings that his soul feels good about. And he will push it off. And he will dismiss it if you tell him that, the, that in order to understand these areas, you need a lot of time and a lot of preliminary, uh, a lot of preliminary disciplines have to be mastered first. So this is the amazing thing about people when it comes to religion or philosophy, or it comes to the what we call olam, these ultimate questions. People don't have the patience. In any other area, if you said to them, this guy is a medical researcher, he, uh, he did a few searches on Google and, uh, and read a couple of, uh, uh, you know, and read a couple of magazine articles, he's an expert on medicine, you would say that's ridiculous, he doesn't know anything, right? So, but a person expects the same level of effort to be invested in solving the ultimate questions of meaning of life, 
And if you tell them that there's anything more than that, they think that you're just deflecting and you're just stalling. You're just, you know, you're just trying to be mysterious by saying that it's a very difficult subject matter to master when obviously it's the granddaddy of every other discipline. It's the question of questions. In order to understand these subordinate subjects like physics, biology, chemistry, uh, uh, any area, even the humanities, even the humanities require a great deal of effort to understand them, psychology and uh, sociology, all of these things. If in order to master that, we know that it takes years upon years to get there, so then why would the ultimate questions that are behind all of that not require even more preparation? This doesn't make any sense. But people want to believe because people have cherished beliefs, like we've talked about before. They have their cherished beliefs close to their heart that for them, they make the world a pleasant place. They make the world an understandable place. They make the world a place that, uh, that it makes sense to them. So therefore they cling to these beliefs rather than to entertain the possibility that there's something much deeper, uh, but that would re- require a lot of effort to understand. And uh, this is why Eov is such, a, uh, is such a disturbing book because basically the story of Eov is a person who had cherished beliefs about how God works. And as long as bad things were only happening to everybody but him, he was able to sustain that system of beliefs that, you know, that he was a good person and had favor in God's eyes and these other people deserved whatever bad things happened to them. But as soon as it, ha- as soon as it happened to him, now he had no way to get it out of it that his, his concept of how God works couldn't be right. And because he was disturbed from his dogma, he had to find a new solution. And of course, the book is very long. And that's the funny thing. People say, why is the book of Eov so long? Why is it so long? You need that many chapters, dozens of chapters. To... How long do you expect a book to be that's solving the ultimate question of human existence? It has to be a short book. It has to be for dummies. Like, what, what are people saying? Of course, it has to be a long book. It's talking about the most significant. The rabbis say one of the opinions is Moshe Rabbeinu wrote Sefer Eov. I think that the Ralbag actually likes that idea because he says it's such a deep book. It's such a profound book. The Rambam also mentions it, that you see that the rabbis thought it's such a profound book. Only Moshe Rabbeinu could write it. You know, meaning, of course, it's going to be an extent. Why can't it just be that, you know, they give the answer to Eov and it's over. God runs the world. It's over. It's not that compli- It's not that simple. There's a lot more to it than that. People don't want to believe that in these ultimate questions, there's a lot of steps that you have to go through before you reach understanding. And so what you're seeing in the book of Eov is you're seeing Eov evolve his understanding of Hashkacha until it gets to the end. But that's not, uh, that's not something that happened overnight. That's something that happened over a long process. And that's the nature of any metaphysical inquiry. There's a lot of steps that have to be traversed before you get to the end. And if you're impatient, you're just going to, cl- what a person's default is, is to cling to how they want things to be until they're so disturbed that they cannot accept. It's like if you like a certain person, you want to see them in a positive light. They do something that bothers you, you dismiss it. Another thing, like Mishle says, you know, you'll say, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. Eventually they do something that you just can't sustain your positive view of them anymore and now you have to change your view, you have to modify your view, right? You have to accept that they weren't the person you thought they were before. It's not so easy to do that. And Kalvachomer, with your beliefs about the nature of the world or your place in it, um, it's not easy for a person to let go of cherished beliefs and to revise those beliefs. Especially if I tell you that cherished belief you have, you need to change it and update it, but it's going to take you 10 years to understand what the truth is about that subject. 
you're not going to invest the time in doing that. First of all, it's psychologically very painful to give up the beliefs about the world that have coddled you and make your life seem meaningful and important. Um, and, uh, and on the other hand, um, uh, you know, the effort to, that you would have to expend to get to a uh, true understanding is overwhelming. That's why you find that people, they love the most simplistic, uh, the most simplistic theologies given out by certain rabbis or preachers. The Rambam makes fun of it too. So I'm not saying anything that's a chidush. I'm not saying my own idea. You all have seen it. You all know it. Okay, the rabbis with the biggest cult followings are the ones that project a view of the world that is two-dimensional, okay? It's extremely simplistic. It's extremely, and it's, it, it appeals to psychologically so much to the person. Um, you also notice that rabbis who are the most influential are the ones that create a cult following around themselves. Then you have to understand why that is because... Um, the cult following of the rabbi means I am, sp- I, because the whole theology revolves around I am special. I'm special. And, uh, and I'm very close to God. And people really like that idea of I'm very close to God. That's Hasidut. That's all these people that are anti-Rambam. Uh, I'm very close to God. I'm very close to God. I learned Hasidut. I'm very close to God because I just have a feeling of closeness to God. But even greater than that is this tzaddik, which this whole idea of the mikubal or the magic working rabbi or whatever it is, is based on the same idea as the chasidut, that by clinging to this personality, I am clinging to, I'm coming closer to God. It makes me more special that I have an association. And that's why they also love to exclude. The more people that they can put in cherem and say, this guy is no good and this guy is no good and this rabbi doesn't know and this rabbi is bad and this... That's the sign of a cult leader because they want to say we're exclusive. We're, not only are you a person who is closer to God, but you are, you, that's le'apuke, like we say in the, in the Gemara. That's, that's le'otzi, everyone else, okay, from the, from the camp. It puts you in a, uh, in a, in a, uh, in a, in a condition that is, uh, no, I wouldn't be able to do that, Benji, sorry. Yeah, I, I never could, I never could manage it. Um, it's, uh, but that's, you, you guys have all had experience with, uh, with the cult leaders, uh, cult leader type rabbis, and you'll notice that, number one, they, they, know, they have a secret knowledge, right? We've talked about this before, but it's really important to know. Number one symptom of the cult rabbi is they have a secret knowledge that they can't give you. It's, now, the Rambam never says, I know, he knows anything he can't tell you. He says, you need to go through the process that I did to get to, the, to get to where I am. But I never said you couldn't get through and I'm special. What does Moshe Rabbeinu say? The ultimate non-cult leader. My favorite pasuk in the Torah probably. If only everybody could be a Navi, that Hashem would place his spirit on everyone. In other words, that's, that's the true leader. He wants everybody to reach his level. He doesn't want to exclude you. The cult leader says, I have something you can't have. It's special to me. It's unique to me. I have this insight. I can take an etrog and put it on my head like this and tell you if it's kosher. There is a rabbi in Great Neck who does that. I'm not going to say who. Okay, I'm going to take the tefillin and put it on my head and use Ruach HaKodesh to tell you if it's pasul. Okay? This, aside from the fact that it's, that's, uh, that's ridiculous... Right, but the, the thing again. What, what was that? What? What? 
I don't know. Something like he puts he, he he focuses on the etrog to see if it's good or not for some kavanot. Or I have no idea. That's what I heard. I don't. But the the point is that anyone who has some special ability, special ruach hakodesh thing that they that nobody else can know how I do this, but I know that there's a mezuzah missing in your house because I I just know that there is. Or I know that it's like how do you know it? I, I just know it. That that's not that's not. There's no such thing as that. So that first of all puts him. Uh, above everyone else but then if you get to be in his circle that means you're in the special circle you're like one of jesus's 12 apostles you know you become part and that's actually exactly what it is it's not even an exaggeration like that's basically what it is you're part of this godly circle that excludes everybody else and um, that makes you super special and one of the things that rambam talks about a lot especially in monobuchim is the more you study the universe and think about how the Rambam had no concept in his time how vast the universe actually is. They had a much more modest uh, uh, concept than we do. So, and they had a much more modest idea of how deep the structure, the, 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 the structure of the laws of the universe is, too. They didn't realize how deep it was because they didn't have the advanced science that we have now. Now it's a billion times deeper than even what the Rambam probably could have imagined. So it's so he said the more you study it, the more you realize that the simplistic religious ideas don't work. You think that the creator of the universe is concerned about whether you missed your train or not. Come on. Everything, you know, like they believe that every detail is specifically God's intervention. That the universe is revolving around them, but the more a person studies the universe, the more they realize that that's so far from the truth. And, but it's hard to accept that. It's much more comforting to believe not only is God involved in every detail of your life personally, um, but that you are part of an exclusive group of the people that God cares about, not just the Jewish people, but part of the, the inner circle of a magic man who channels God's power in ways that nobody else can do. So that's the cult leader uh, personality. So this is, the, uh, this is the danger of the cult leader, but um, the, like I'm saying, the Rambam, by telling you a program of study, is for, so a person will cling to a simplistic idea or a simplistic solution to his existential fear. What's the existential fear? That my life is meaningless, okay? That I'm not significant, that I'm not important. I need to get away from that idea that my finitude and my, you know, my mortality are overwhelming. So I cling to something that makes me feel bigger than I am. That's the natural uh, that theology of a person that they're going to want to construct a view of the world that puts them at the center or that at least gives them reassurance that they are good and worthy and valuable and, uh, and so on. Uh, but the Rambam is saying part of the humility that goes in real understanding is I'm never going to tell you that there's something I know that you couldn't know or there's some secret that's been revealed to me that couldn't be revealed to you. But what I will tell you is that in order to understand that you need to study the same things that I study. You need to go through the process. That's all. If you ask a good karate master how they got to where they are, they're not going to tell you that it was overnight. They probably, they'll tell you, if you do the same thing I did for 20 years, you, you, you practice every single day, you study, okay, you will, yeah, there might be differences in talent and ability, natural talent, natural ability. The Rambam is going to talk about that. 
But could you become very competent in this discipline if you put in the time? Of course. There's nothing that the master has that the average person doesn't have fundamentally, let's say. Um, even though there would still be a matter of degree. Look, you can, be, uh, you can study all the same things as Einstein. You might not come out as Einstein if you don't have that brain. But you could understand the things that Einstein understood using, you know, following the path that he followed. In any case. Vata Yodea. Yeah. Well established that even a lifetime of study and discipline, certain ideas are different. Or what? I couldn't hear. Ultimately, beyond our understanding. Yeah, of course. The analogy uh, seems to imply that the steps required to obtain these answers to these questions. There's a level of understanding that a person can have that doesn't mean a full understanding. So it's just like we can understand God exists, but let's say we can't really understand much beyond that. But knowing what you don't know is also a knowledge. The Rambam talks about that too. We talked about that before about, you know, um, I think it's, we, we, when we were skipping around in the more, I think we touched on the famous analogy that he has of the person who sees a boat coming from far away and... As it comes closer, he's able to rule out different possibilities of what it could be, even though uh, he doesn't have any positive knowledge of what it is, ruling out what it, um, for example, as a person, when a person's younger, they might think God should have emotions. This is a very common thing among, let's say, teenagers, because teenagers are like living balls of emotion and hormones. One's out of ignorance, one's out of Right, exactly. When a person is a teenager, they're in the grip of all kinds of hormones and emotions and all that. They can't conceive of a God without emotion because to them, emotion is, is existence. Emotion is, you know, how could you be a compassionate God or, or be a good God and not have emotion and feeling, right? Once you become, once you realize that no, emotion is actually just a byproduct of chemicals in your brain and your body and it's actually as physical as eating and drinking and uh, other bodily uh, functions, so then you realize, oh, of course, God can't be have emotions either, right? But that's an advanced level. In other words, you, but by ruling that out, you didn't say what God is. You said what God isn't. You actually came to a closer, a closer to an understanding of God, meaning you removed ignorance. Removing ignorance is also good. Ruling out one side of a theory is no, in a, when a scientist can rule out something, it's no, more, it's no less of an advance in knowledge than when he rules it in. In other words, when you prove something is true or you prove something is false, it's like a lot of mathematics is, is proof through negation also, you know, di- disproving the opposite. So uh, you, know, you prove that something can't be the case, it's also knowledge. So uh, even though it could be, in other words, knowing that you can't know the essence of God is one of the most important things that you know, that you can't know. In other words, knowing the limits of your understanding is itself a great insight. And so every time you rule out something or even you show that it's not possible to know something, it's also an insight. And it can be some of the most profound insights that there are. Um, That... uh, the, the recognition that, uh, of the limits of the intellect. And in fact, they say that about the Rambam, that one of the greatest contributions he made to thought is, uh, is delineating the limits of the, uh, of the human intellect because that itself is a tremendous insight. And I think it's funny because 
you know, the scholastics and everything, the people after the Rambam, especially the Christian uh, philosophers, but to a, a, some extent, some of the Jewish ones also, uh, didn't like his uh, theory of attributes, negation of attributes and all that. Um, and, uh, and really the, the philosophers like after Kant, where we're talking about like in the times of human Kant going forward um, to the, that later period of philosophy, which is considered like a whole new era, uh, one of the things that Kant contributed was the impossibility, basically, of knowing metaphysics because of the nature of our mind doesn't really allow us to do that. And the funny thing is that he that everyone thought that was so revolutionary, but basically that's what the Rambam is also saying. You know, it's not really revolutionary, the idea that we can't know metaphysical things per se because we don't have the tools, the, the, the intellectual cognitive tools to do that. There's not, that's not really a chidush of the later philosophers. That was what the Rambam was saying all along. So knowing the limits is itself a, a positive thing. Knowing what can't be or what must be negated in a certain situation, like ruling out, let's say a, a de- detective is looking to establish who is the perpetrator of a certain crime. If he's ruling out a certain person, they couldn't have been there. They couldn't have done it. It's also an advance in the investigation, ruling out possibilities. You know, so yeah, there is a type of knowledge you can have, and then there's a type of knowledge you can't have, and that's lo yuani hadam v'chai. A person can have purely metaphysical understanding because our mind is always trapped, so to speak, is always embedded in a body, and therefore has limits on its ability. We can't understand what exist, what metaphysical existence, mind without body, even means because we never see it or experience it. Everything we use to try to grasp metaphysical concepts is with a metaphor. And when we mistake the metaphor for real, that's when we get into avodazara, or we get into uh, we get into other dangerous territory. But basically, anything we can understand is always through some material. Medium. It's never metaphysical per se. We understand God through his actions in the world. We understand Malachim through their actions in the world and through deriving from what they, what they aren't. But, you know, like we can say the word mind without body, but to us that's very abstract. It doesn't mean anything positive in our mind, to us because we don't have a concept of that. We can't even understand what Gan Eden is because of that. Like the Rambam says, and I, he says in, uh, I think it's in Shmona Prakim, where he says, um, a person can't, um, no, no, it's in Perkhelek. Uh, in Perkhelek, he says that a person uh, can't understand what Olam Haba is, just like a fish can't understand what it is to live outside of the water. We can't understand what it's like to live without a body. It doesn't, it's not a concept, for, it's not, you know, so therefore we have to use metaphor. So he says, All of these subjects are interconnected with each other. Because the only thing that we have is Hashem and all of His creations. And that's everything that exists besides Him. The only way to come to an understanding of God is through His creations that indicate, that point to His existence. And that means what we should say about God and what we should negate about God, meaning what we should not say. So you have to reflect upon the entire existence of creation as it is. So 
So he says, and from our study of God's creation, we, we obtain, we derive the hakdamot, the preliminaries to achieve the higher level of understanding. Right? It, and this is, of course, true. Since all of existence points to God, all of existence is an expression of God's wisdom, in order to achieve an understanding of God, we need to see that total picture, the panorama, and derive from it whatever, whatever steps are necessary to reach an understanding of God. Some things come from mathematics. Some come from geometric properties. That when you understand uh, geometry, you understand mathematics, there are certain things you learn to not predicate of God, to not attribute to God. Um, space, for example, and dimension. And obviously understanding astronomy and the study of nature is critical for knowing how God relates to the world and runs the world. So even more so than mathematics. Mathematics and geometry give you certain understanding of what not to say about God. Quantity, dimension, space, shape, so on. But, uh, and, and he's probably here referring to the Pythagoreans who thought that mathematics somehow, uh, uh, re, you know, reflected, um, uh, you know, uh, some ideas about God or there was divine quality to mathematics uh, that the Rambam rejects. But then he says, certainly science, not, you know, you don't want to have an imaginary idea of how the universe works. You want to have a real idea. So in order to see that, you see science. Like I always would say, do you want to see Hashem cause an object to move? You want to see Hashem make an object move? And I would just drop a book on the ground. I said, Hashem just made it move. He used gravity. Gra- God created gravity. He just moved the book onto the floor from my hand. That's, why is that not God acting? It's God acting. In other words, if you understand lo bedim, you know, not bedimion, not in the imagination, but you understand in reality how God runs the world, it's through. People want to see a magic type of a God. But actually, if you just look around you, you see God operating everywhere through the medium of the laws of nature. The other area that you have to go, you have to gain proficiency in is the training of the mind that isn't about the content, but it's about the process. That you need to learn how to think and how to reach the truth in areas that are more of substance. So he says that, that, and this is what I was mentioning before, you study, let's say, logic, for instance, that teaches you how to differentiate between what's essential and what's what they call in logic accidental. In other words, if you're looking at a table, what's essential is whatever the definition of a table is. What's accidental is what kind of wood is it made out of, what color is it, what's the exact size. Sometimes a person will confuse what's essential with what is non-essential or what the logicians call accidental. And that's very, very common. Um, It's a very common mistake to make in reasoning. And that's the number one mistake that people make is they confuse uh, when they try to make an analogy or they try to make a, uh, they try to reason from one thing to the other. They mistake what is a, uh, uh, what is an essential property uh, for, you know, or what is really a secondary property for, for, be, for as an essential property. And then they, then they try to make an analogy or they try to derive something from it. That's the number one error people make. He says, you need to train yourself not to think that way. 
You know, we know what kind of dis- diseased and incorrect ideas emerge when we make these kind of mistakes. Um, in other words, in addition to understanding those subjects, um, the methodology through which you think and you learn and you reason is very valuable. Even if they're not necessarily foundations in their content to knowledge of God. So he's saying that a person has to study logic and all of the preliminary disciplines in order to prepare himself to know, uh, to study this area. So then the person studies Teva, he studies nature, and, um, and then he studies the divine science of, uh, of metaphysics. The point is that he's saying that in, there are disciplines that are in their content directly related to understanding of God, and the, such as sciences and so on, and obviously Torah also is under that because Torah is an example of how God runs the world through his mitzvot. And then you have areas where the value of the subject is, more, is less in the content and more in the methodology that it gives you. And that's in training the mind to think. That could be in mathematics, that could be in logic, um, that can be in certain aspects of Talmud, Talmudic reasoning that give, you, give the person uh, skills for logical uh, analysis that are useful in studying uh, any subject, but especially will prepare the mind to study these subjects and not to arrive at erroneous conclusions. Yes? Is it wrong to say then that the more collective... I couldn't hear you for a sec. Sorry. The, the more collective understanding and knowledge that we get every generation, the more and more we see some of the sciences a little bit more understanding of all topics develop greater makes that understanding better even via negative makes it easier well it's a person doesn't have to for example know every detail that's become uh, revealed to us in other words the question would be like does Moshe Rabbeinu know more about God or do you because you know modern physics you know that was a question that people would ask right so the answer is that it's he didn't need it. right. Well, the answer is that what points to God is not the particular um, under scientific model that you're using for understanding the universe, because those models will be revised a thousand years from now. Will look potentially totally different, or in many ways fundamentally different than it looks now. A hundred years ago, it looked different than it does now. A hundred years from now, we'll have improvements and, and things. So what, what stays the same, in other words, what Moshe Rabbeinu and has in common with us is that he has a vision of the universe where he sees that, the or, he sees that there is an order and a design, and that order and design comes from the mind of the ultimate designer. And, and that it's a, it's a system... It's not a magical arena where things happen randomly, but it's a, it's a, uh, so studying of science reveals to us the order that is innate in nature um, and shows us the difference between the law that governs the, the uh, particle or that governs the phenomenon and the phenomenon itself, the material phenomenon itself. That distinction and differentiation is very important 
at any level, but what exactly the laws are, what exactly our understanding of the laws is at any particular time, or our, whether we use the Aristotelian model, we have the Newtonian, Einsteinian, quantum, whatever it is, those are just different ways of trying to organize the knowledge that we have of the order of the universe. But the main principle is that the universe has material and has laws and principles that order it, and that these laws and principles that order it are coming from a creator who... Uh, who brought about this fusion between the material and the uh, and the uh, uh, and the comprehensible and the intelligible aspects of uh, you know of what we observe? So w- Moshe Rabbeinu would be very happy to see uh, even greater, even more comprehensive account of how God's wisdom manifests itself in the universe, and that we've come to an even more accurate. Understanding, and he would say, it just shows you the infinite depth that you can constantly be uncovering more and more and more, and uh, and our comprehension is refined further and further and further. The deeper we dig, the more we see the underlying unity of everything. He would be pleased to see that, but that there is an understanding, uh, an underlying unity, and that there is a coherence in the universe. That, of course, Moshe Rabbeinu understood better than we do. Okay, so that's the um, so in terms of the details or the particular model we use to uh, reflect that and the data that we have collected and the you know the extent to which we've we've extended that idea far beyond what anybody could have done thousands of years ago, but the fundamental idea remains the same. We're just filling in the gaps and extending it further and further. So yeah, it's amazing to see that. But he would say, well, of course. You know, I didn't think I knew everything. I didn't think human understanding would end with me. I'm just presenting to you a framework. In other words, uh, you know, going back to what we were talking about last time, you know, on, when we talk about Yismach Moshe b'matanat chilko, Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, on Shabbat, gave us the Shabbat, that meaning that God is the creator. What is the idea of Shabbat? That, that the entire universe is a created, designed entity that uh, was caused by God. And that, therefore, we stop to reflect on that. That principle is an eternal principle. How exactly we see that God's wisdom is manifest in the universe could evolve. Because we're not going to have the full picture, but that we have that guiding light uh, of understanding. In other words, the fundamental notion that the universe is an orderly, comprehensible entity. That has not changed. That came from the times of Avram Avinu. It came from Moshe Rabbeinu and basically guided all of scientific inquiry until today. It's just that we're constantly pushing it forward. You'll say, well, that means that all of our understanding now is only, uh, you know, our understanding will look different. It will look different in the future in terms of the, the details. We'll know more about how it works out. But what do we know? We know that that's true about Torah also. Because what is the story about Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva gets transported, right? Moshe Rabbeinu gets transported into Rabbi Akiva's shiur thousands of years in the future. And what does he see? A class he can't understand. Right? And they're talking about mitzvot. They're talking about Torah. And he says, I have no idea what these people are talking about. And I was the one who received the Torah. Well, what's, what's going on? This guy's obviously a genius, this absent-minded professor, Rabbi Akiva, going through all this stuff, but I have no clue what the man is saying. Until finally he says, this is halacha Moshe misinai, and then he realizes. In other words, the idea is that all of this emerged from a principle, then once you show Moshe Rabbeinu where it came from, oh, okay, now I see. 
Just like I used to use the example, if you show Einstein an iPhone, okay? Obviously, he died long before that was created, almost 100 years before that was created. Show him an iPhone, he would find it interesting. He wouldn't understand how it worked. But you could show him how his insights from 100 years ago basically led to the creation of uh, the technology that we have now. And once you showed him that connection, he would be able to understand exactly how the iPhone worked. He didn't make that connection. He didn't develop it. He didn't th- wasn't able to, 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 to extract all the threads of all of the implications of everything that he himself discovered. That's never the case. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, what, he was, what was revealed to him, he did not have the full extent of all the implications. But he could see, if you gave him the results of future extensions of his ideas, he could see how they derived from his original idea. So that's the same thing. He would see science as, wow, you've really developed the concept of the unity of creation and the orderliness of creation and the intellectual uh, uh, beauty of creation to such an extent beyond what I ever imagined. But it's an extension, ultimately, of the fundamental ideas that, you know, that I presented. And it just now gives us even more... Um, uh, you know, more examples, more, uh, you know, more data that point to the conclusion that we, uh, that we had already established. So, yeah, it gives us more, v- it gives us more, um, uh, it strengthens our ability to, to, to demonstrate the existence of God in the sense that um, it gives us even more data to back up our basic view, but it doesn't actually, um, doesn't mean that Moshe Rabbeinu had inferior knowledge to what we had. It just means that we filled in the gaps and extended his ideas even further. And there's always some, there's always an element in science where there's uncertainty. There's always that element where we can't quite explain why it is how it is. And it seems to point to a cause higher than itself. There's never a closed system in science. There's always a gap where an external cause is necessitated. Now we have in quantum physics. You always have uh, at the edge of physics something, some gap that can't be bridged that requires a creator, and that's always going to be the case. It's never going to be a closed system. It's always going to lead to something at the end, where it, which is something caused it. Something is causing it to work out the way that it does and, uh, and sustaining it. We don't know what it is. And, that's the, that, and you'll always come back to that same uh, to that same point of departure again and again. So Bezvat Hashem will continue next week. Uh, actually, not next week because next week is Rosh Hashanah. And, uh, and uh, oh, I mean, uh, yeah. Well, how will it work? Yeah, it'll be, it'll be Motzei Rosh Hashanah for you guys. will be late. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll, we can talk about it. Maybe we can do it. And then the following week will be Yom Kippur. So we'll have to, we'll have to see when our next uh, opportunity to meet. Maybe we'll adjust the day and try a different day. Uh, going forward the next couple of weeks with the Chagim, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Okay? I gotta run. I have to go to Shabbat.